All right, praise the Lord. You know, I was wondering, we didn't have a picture for the donations. We actually took pictures to show everyone how much we collected and blessed the shelter, no? Oh, okay, tiny pictures, but yeah. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for everyone who donated. It was such a blessing, and they were very, very thankful. I don't know why they were so thankful. Maybe they're running low on supplies, but they, the shelter were, not the shelter, I'm sorry, the residents, uh, they were very, very thankful. Okay, praise God. Open up your Bibles to 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, and then we're going to read verse 10. And we are going to be spending one more week today on false teaching, and I'm actually excited to move beyond this. I have been neck deep in reading about paganism, the occult, postmodernism, Marxism, and I am ready to move on. So praise the Lord. But it is still very important that we understand what is going on in our world right now. But 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, and then verse 10. This is God's word. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then verse 10. To those who indulge in the lust of defiling, defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, Lord, and you are truly great. And Lord God, your presence is always with your people whenever we are gathered. And Lord God, we know that you speak your word because you love us. Because Lord, your word brings life. It brings guidance and protection and it also, Father, heals that which is wrong and broken. And I pray that you would do all of that. Father, convict as well. It convicts of sin. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would do all of that here. I pray that you would speak your truth, Father, whether it's error out there in the world in comparison to the truth that is in your word, that you would speak it, Father, and make it plain to everyone here. We thank you. Thank you for that time of worship. Thank you now for this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So false teachings and false teachers in the church, this is what Peter began to warn us about in 2 Peter chapter 2. And what does all of that have to do with us? So that's kind of the big question. And my answer is everything. It has everything to do with us. And I believe Peter's strange use of the future tense is the Holy Spirit's way of making this warning that Peter gave us about false teachers and false teachings. It's the Spirit's way of making that immediate and relevant to us. But Peter said, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And so I really believe when the Spirit inspired Peter to put it in that future tense, it was meant to be immediate, relevant to us. In, in other words, we should hear it as words to us. And too many Christians, we don't. We just kind of read these things, we see it as something else, and yet these are warnings to us. And as we've seen for the last several weeks, this warning couldn't be more relevant because we live in an age of false teachers and teachings. Amen? It's not really an amen, but it is so true. And I believe it defines our age, 
more than it defined even Peter's age, it really does mark the times we're living in. And that's because there is so much more variety of false teachings today. I mean, if I were to go around and ask you guys to just list all the false teachings in the world, I bet this entire room couldn't even come up with half of it. But there are so many out there, and they are so widespread today. Jesus, in fact, said in Matthew 24, deception will mark the last days, and deception will increase as his return draws near. He's very clear about that. And so deception marks the days that we live in, and two false teachings we've looked at, which are like two dragons tearing through the world right now, they are neo-paganism and cultural Marxism. And believe me, brothers and sisters, these things are growing, they are increasing, and they're not going anywhere. We are going to encounter them more and more. You know, I wasn't going to share this, but even this past week, I saw this new uh, commercial from Apple, but they had this commercial where Mother Nature flew into their conference room and, they, and she rebuked the entire staff there. But a lot of people were saying, man, that looks awfully pagan. And it is. It's a very pagan kind of theme that Apple is pushing out there. But this stuff is everywhere. Well, we're not going to be looking at paganism anymore, but we're going to be looking today at cultural Marxism again. Cultural Marxism. And what we began last week, we're going to finish today. But cultural Marxism, this is a false teaching that perfectly fits Peter's description of false teachings in general in 2 Peter chapter 2. But as Peter's describing this false teaching back in his day, it really fits what we see today. But Marxism, cultural Marxism, it is a destructive heresy. Why? Because it's leading many people away from biblical faith. It's also bringing a lot of chaos into our society. I covered a bunch of examples from last week. But there's a lot of destruction happening. It also denies Christ. It explicitly does that. It rejects the Bible narrative. It actually rejects all meta-narratives, overarching stories, but especially the Bible. It rejects Christ. It is also sensual. In other words, it appeals to the carnal person and the things that the carnal person desires. It is sensual. And of course, many follow it. So it's everywhere today. Again, this stuff is not going away. It might shift and take different forms, but it will be here for a long time. So all of this perfectly fits the description Peter gave in chapter 2, verse 10. And there is also another description that Peter gave, which is those teachings that he faced were spread by teachers who despised authority. They despised authority. Whose authority? Christ's authority. And here's why. According to one Bible commentator, I mentioned this last week. But the reason why they despised Jesus' authority is because they were supremely confident of their intellectual ability. In other words, they rejected Jesus and his word. Why? Because they're so smart. Because they knew better. They knew better than Jesus. They knew better than his word. And so those were the false teachers in Peter's day. And these are exactly who the false teachers are today when we are talking about cultural Marxism. Because cultural Marxism really began with the intellectuals, the people who are so smart, the people who know better. And so it really began with the intellectuals in Europe, and then it spread over into the universities in the US, and then over time, it trickled down to the main street, to where everybody else is. And now it is everywhere, in fact, throughout the world. And so these ideas that started with the intellectuals, they are kind of like clouds floating high in the sky, and eventually, over time, these ideas, in the beginning, they almost seem like nothing. 
like clouds way up there, but over time they become so big and so heavy, they begin to rain down consequences on everyone. And we know what these consequences are. Last week I gave several different examples of just strange things that are taking place all the time now in our society. I'm not gonna mention them again. Some of you guys might have even, you know, were confused by these things, but, but that's the point. This is the chaos that is brought today. These are the consequences. So bottom line, cultural Marxism is a certain way of seeing the world. Okay, it is a worldview. That's why it's taken such a hold in people today. And it is a worldview that is hypersensitive to the systemic injustices and prejudices that come from certain dominant groups. Okay, this is what they're saying. So here are these prejudices and biases, injustices that come from certain dominant groups like straight white men. Okay, they mention that group a lot. And that is being pointed towards other groups that are oppressed like gay women of color, for example. And so this is what cultural Marxism is hyper-focused on. And people with this ideology, they see it as a moral duty to actively dismantle this systemic injustice and prejudice that they see all around. So this is their calling. This is what they believe they're called to do. And they're going to use anything like policies, laws, the media, schools, companies, and protests. Yes, even violent protests if necessary. They're going to use whatever in order to dismantle systemic injustice and prejudice. And so this ideology, it really is a worldview. It is a way of seeing the world and is everywhere today. It is impacting everyone today and especially Christians. I really believe as I look ahead in the years ahead, it's gonna really impact how we're gonna spread the gospel, preach the word, even have church. I really believe it's gonna impact all of that. So we're gonna need to understand all of this if we're gonna stand against it. We also need to understand if we're gonna be missionaries. Last week I mentioned how we're called to be missionaries, and so we should see all of this as missionaries. And I was really inspired to hear live the missionary Don Richardson, who came to my seminary years ago. But he talked about how he spent years and years learning a foreign culture so that he could reach these people, the Saudi people in Indonesia. But we could do the same. We can spend a little bit of time as missionaries to understand the culture around us. So this is why we're looking at this topic. This is why this is so important. So how did cultural Marxism saturate our culture today? Okay, how did we get here? Well, last week we began to answer that question. And basically, cultural Marxism today is really the product of three different streams. Kind of like a little stream that begins high up in the mountain and then as it comes down the mountain, these streams grow in size. They begin to converge connect with other streams, and then eventually, all these little streams become a loud, muddy river called cultural Marxism. Okay, that's the picture I get. So everything we're seeing today, cultural Marxism, is really the product of these three different streams or rivers of thought. So last week, we talked about what they are. They are critical theory, postmodernism, and social justice. So critical theory, postmodernism, and social justice. And let me just briefly summarize what they are. We don't have time to go into all of that again. But they all have a connection to Marxism. So that's kind of like the fountain. And then from that fountain, Marxism flowed all these streams that eventually became large rivers connecting into one gigantic river 
which is cultural Marxism today. So Marxism, this is where it all began. And this is not the same thing as critical theory, postmodernism, social justice. They, they, they have a, a connection to it, but they're not the same thing. But this is where it all began. So Marxism is based on the writings and teachings of Karl Marx. By the way, he had a very dark and demonic influence in his life. I mentioned some things that he was into last week, but it's very strange. Well known by historians. But he was an atheist, and he was also a philosopher. He also had these demonic kind of influences. And over time, he basically came up with this ideology, this idea that all of society is in conflict, class conflict. Between the wealthy ruling class, he called them the oppressors, and the poor working class, he called them the oppressed. So that's a very easy picture to understand, right? Okay, one famous example that Marx gave is, whenever you ask the poor working class, how much do you want to get paid, what's the answer? As much as possible, right? And then when you ask the wealthy business owners, how much do you want to pay your workers, the answer is always as little as possible. So that's a very easy thing to understand. We understand this conflict. Some of us have even experienced that. But Marx said this conflict is everywhere in society. In fact, it defines society. And so this is the way he saw the whole world. And then from that ideology, it flowed down to the 1920s and 30s. And then this kind of revolutionary ideology basically grabbed hold of these German intellectuals called the Frankfurt School the Frankfurt School. And they took this ideology of Marxism and then they changed it. They applied it to the entire culture. And the reason why is because they weren't seeing these revolts happening everywhere, especially in Germany, so they had to come up with an idea, right? Another idea, why isn't this happening everywhere? Marx said this is inevitable, this conflict will result in revolution. So their answer is basically, okay, this conflict, right, oppressors, and the oppressed, this dynamic, is actually happening all throughout culture. Not just in economics, but all throughout culture. In other words, the culture itself and the ideology of the people controlling the culture, they're keeping people down, they're suppressing everyone. And so they jumped into that, they tried to figure out all those dynamics of who's being oppressed and who's the oppressor and different Areas that's happening like the schools and the economy and businesses and you know, government and they're just exploring all that and all of that study is called critical theory. So that's critical theory. So that's the first stream flowing down from Marxism. And then in the 50s and 60s, another river emerged called postmodernism. So these are French guys, these are French intellectuals. When you think of critical theory, think of German intellectuals. And then when you hear postmodernism, think of French intellectuals. And postmodernism was a reaction to everything that came before. Okay, these French guys, they were pessimistic, skeptical, skeptical about everything that came before, like objective truth, human reason, science, even Marxism, right? They're, they're just kind of jaded by everything. So basically, these skeptical postmodern French guys, they came up with new ideas. So here's another whole set of ideas. Okay, I'm just kind of running through this quickly. But they came up with new ideas, like things on truth and power. But they're skeptical, so they say, you know what? We don't know objective truth. We don't have access to that. In fact, all the truth we know is based on your own subjective experience. 
your own place in society, your own biases, right? You don't have access to objective truth. And since you don't have access to objective truth, the quote-unquote truth that you say you know, the truth that people talk about, is really a way to exercise power. Okay, people are really exercising power. They're using it to kind of manipulate people, to use people. So they said we use our words to say things that are supposedly true, but they're really oppressing people. So this is what they came up with. So a simple statement like men and women are different, right? These are just words. It's just a statement. It seems to be true, but we don't know if that's really true. And so really what that is is that's an expression of power, right? Men who are in power are using it to push down or keep down women who are not in power. So that's what a lot of postmodernists began to say, and over time, this is what it developed into this theory. So that's the second river. And then finally, those two rivers of critical theory and postmodernism combined with a third river in the 1980s and 1990s called social justice. And now this is where everything exploded. This is where everything became real on the ground. And so people now became very clear on their purpose. Okay, we had these ideas, right, from these different rivers. Yeah, okay, oppressor, oppression. There's dynamics going on. Okay, objective truth. Okay, we don't know that anymore. Everything is about power. Okay, all these ideas now have come together, and they knew what they needed to do. It is to bring justice in society. So I'm making this very, very sketchy and brief. But all of that came together to form this movement called social justice. And now everything is real on the ground. Now there's a purpose. We need to change society. It's very activist. And so all of that is what people call cultural Marxism today. Okay, this is what we see today. Okay, these are all the laws that are trying to get pushed. These are all the things happening in the schools, right? These are all the things that are happening in society and all the weird commercials that companies are putting up and everything we see. Okay, this is how it happened. This is how we got here. So again, this is a very sketchy summary. This is very brief but I think you're going to notice certain ideas from these rivers popping up as we look at the major themes of cultural Marxism today. So as we now get into what cultural Marxism is today, right here, right now, you're gonna see all these themes pop up. So we're gonna look at what is cultural Marxism, what are the main themes in it, and then finally, how should we respond to it? And along the way, I'm gonna give examples of how we see it in the church. And again, please hear all of this as missionaries so that you can understand the people that you bump into at work or maybe in your family and so that we can actually reach them. So what is cultural Marxism today? Well, to understand that, you have to understand the four main ideas that make up cultural Marxism today. The four main ideas. And again, all these ideas flow from all those rivers. And these four ideas, I got it from a... Christian scientist and writer, his name is Neil Shenvey. He's a scientist, but he kind of got into this topic and now he's writing a lot on this stuff. And I changed the wording a little, but basically the four ideas are, are his, they're coming from him. So here are the four main ideas that make up cultural Marxism today. Okay, the first one is society is basically two sets of groups in conflict, many of them. They're basically binary groups. Binary just means sets of two, but there are two sets of groups in conflict all throughout society. So in the same way that Marx saw all of society as a conflict between who? 
the wealthy ruling class and the poor working class, right? The oppressor and the oppressed. So here are these two groups. Well, cultural Marxists today see conflict in the same way. They see all of society as different sets of groups opposing each other, the dominant oppressor group and subordinate oppressed group, and they are everywhere, right? They fill up our society. In fact, all of our society is made up of that. And people in these movements, they make this point very clear. If you were to read their writings, begin to poke around in their books, they just mention it right away. So what groups are we talking about? Well, there is the dominant group of men who are oppressing the subordinate group, women. There, are, there is also the dominant group of white people. And then there are oppressed people of color. There is also the dominant group of straight people who are oppressing gay people. There's a dominant group of non-transgendered people. They're called cisgendered, meaning like the sex that I am biologically is the sex that I feel like I am. Well, those people are oppressing transgender people. There's the dominant able-bodied people. They are oppressing disabled people. And there is also the dominant fit people. Fit meaning you exercise, right? And they are oppressing overweight people. Okay, I'm not joking. That is actually a field of study in the universities today. It's called fat studies. You can major in that. And then, of course, there is the dominant Christian groups in our culture, and they are oppressing the minority religious groups. So these are all the multiple pairs that they see all throughout society. So everything is divided into these groups. And then there's another layer where these group identities can intersect with one another, forming unique forms of oppression. So it's not even just about these individual pairs all by themselves, but these different identities can intersect with one another. Such as you can have a trans black woman who face greater oppression than just black women, who face greater oppression than just women, white women. So there's different intersections of all this as well. And by the way, there is some truth to that. There have been studies done to show that this is true. I remember reading about this one study done about a GM plan, I think, hiring different groups of people, and they found that black men and white women were hired at lower rates than white men, but they found that black women, so when you combine those two groups, black women, the intersection of black and women, they were hired at far lower rates. And so there is some truth to that. This is what they began to uncover. But when that binary lens is the only way you see society all the time, right? You're just walking around, that's what you see everywhere then it becomes a very narrow and divisive way of seeing human beings, isn't it? It's very divisive. And it ignores the proper biblical divisions that God has put in place. So again, all the proper divisions that God has put in place, like proper sexual roles, divisions between men and women, yes, we are one in God, we have the same image of God, and yet there are unique, distinct differences. All these things begin to get attacked and so this is a, a consequence of seeing the world in this way. And there's another terrible consequence, which is people are judged and condemned by their group identity. And so it doesn't matter what people are doing individually, whether you actually are racist or not racist, if you are part of a certain group of people, let's say Caucasians, then cultural Marxists will say, you need to admit that you are racist. That's the starting point, just admit it. 
but I'm not. No, you need to admit it and then move on from there. I, I remember actually reading that in one of these books. Just admit it straight out. And so this is another terrible consequence of this ideology is people are now judged and categorized and actually accused of sins they might not even be guilty of. And unfortunately, this binary way of seeing people is in the church, is right in the church. You know, recently I saw this book in a list of top 10 Christian books, maybe top 20, I, couldn't, I can't remember, but it was in one of those top 10 lists. But this book was titled Black, Gay, British, Christian, Queer. So that's the title, Black, Gay, British, Christian, Queer. And then the subtitle is The Church and the Famine of Grace. So in that book, this author was clearly highlighting a certain intersection of identities, right? These are all oppressed identity groups. So black people, gay people, maybe British people, I don't know, um, queer people. But he just listed them. And so namely, these are the black LGBTQ Christians living in Britain. So this is an oppressed group. And then he pointed out how that group has been actually shunned and has not received grace from the dominant group, which is the Christian group, the dominant Christian group. So do you see that? This is a best-selling Christian book, categorizing people in that way, in this kind of binary way, oppressed group, oppressed group, right? Dominant group, subordinate group. So that's the first theme of cultural Marxism. The moment you jump into this stuff, the moment you talk to somebody who's gripped by this ideology, this is how they're gonna see the world. Everything's split into these pairs. Here's the second idea, number two. Oppression is all about ideology. See, this is very unusual because in the past, oppression used to be what? People actually physically oppressing people, right? You're hitting people, you're harassing people, you're calling them names. There are actual physical things happening, but now oppression is all about ideology. And where do we see this? We saw this earlier in critical theory, didn't we? Okay, this is this kind of invisible oppression through ideology, through culture. So this is the idea that, quote, I'm quoting from one of their books, the Cultural Marxists, their books. It says, the dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. So the dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. And these cultural Marxists have a term for this. It's not important, but it's worth knowing, hegemonic power. So whenever you hear that term, if a friend of yours begins to talk about hegemonic power, that's what they're talking about. It's this kind of invisible, intangible power, right? That dominant groups are using to keep people down through culture, through ideology. So what does this hegemonic power look like? Well, it would be something as innocent as, let's say, a dominant group, let's say heterosexuals, just talking about their sex life, just living their normal lives, really um, embracing the lifestyle of a heterosexual, talking about the values of heterosexuals, having interests that are more heterosexual, having images and symbols that represent heterosexuality. So in other words, they have made heterosexuality the norm. Okay, it's the norm. And because they have now made it the norm, they are now causing people who are not heterosexual undesirable and not normal. They don't look normal. 
And so then cultural Marxists say that is hegemonic power. That is that kind of invisible cultural power that is oppressing sexual minorities. Okay, is that clear? Okay, this is what they're saying. And heterosexual people might not even know they're doing it, right? They don't even know that they're doing this. And so you can actually have an entire company where there is not one homophobic person there, and yet the entire company can be called homophobic. Why? Because it's an ideology, right? It's this invisible kind of cultural power that's at play. And this is why people are getting very confused. Like, I'm not that. Well, you're a part of that. I'm not racist. Well, you're a part of that. This is how you get entire companies, entire industries without a single racist in it being declared racist. So this is what oppression looks like to the cultural Marxists. It is ideology. So this idea of oppressing through ideology is not only accusing people of sin who might not actually have that sin, but it's also dangerous for another reason. There's no room for objective truth to see if something really is oppressive or not. You can't even go around testing and asking questions to see if things are objectively true. Why? Because there is no access to objective truth. Where do we hear that? Remember the postmodern people? So you don't know if something is actually true and you'll never know. We don't have access to that. So anything now that you say is true, all your truth claims are really what? It's just your ideology. It's just your power play. Right, you're using that to keep people down. And this includes the Bible. See, the Bible is not a book full of objective truths, but rather it's ideology. It's just one group's ideology being pumped out and forced onto everyone else. An ideology that in one way or another oppresses those who don't agree with it, right? Who don't fit in. And if you think people saying truth is relative is the biggest threat to the Bible today, we're way beyond that. Okay, we're way beyond that. And so this is the second idea that is everywhere in cultural Marxism is that ideas have consequences. All the oppression we see is coming through ideology, this invisible power in the culture. And even all of this has come into Christianity. But there has uh, been a huge controversy several years ago. I remember about three years ago, this huge controversy erupting among the Southern Baptists and conservative Christians. And I remember it just being everywhere online. I read a lot on it. But basically, some people within these conservative Christian groups said that critical race theory and social justice teachings are actually tools that we can use to understand the Bible. They said we can actually use these things to interpret the Bible. And once people said that, there was a huge outcry, there was all this controversy. And I can understand why. It's because it's hard to imagine how a worldview that is diametrically opposed to the Bible and what the Bible says, okay, how can that worldview have tools that can help us interpret the Bible? And yet that's what a lot of these Christians, conservative Christians were saying. You know what, critical theory and all this stuff, race theory, we can use this to understand the Bible better. And so this is in the church as well. But this is the second idea. Okay, here's the third idea. Truth is accessed through lived experience only. Truth is accessed through lived experience only. So this means only those who are oppressed can know the truth about their oppression. Or if they're not, they can wake up to it, right? They can be woken up to that truth, and that's where you get that term woke but they can wake up to that truth. 
if they haven't yet. But only those who are oppressed can know the truth about their oppression. And in contrast, these people, they say, those who are privileged and not oppressed, they're blind to other people's oppression and they're blind to their own privilege. So they're basically blind. They can't know anything. And brothers and sisters, on the surface, I admit this can sound true, right? This makes sense. To a degree, yeah, until you've actually lived it and you don't really understand it. Okay, that's what it sounds like. And yet, cultural Marxists, they take it to a whole nother level. But they say even the oppressed, they can internalize their oppression and they can be blind to it. So that even when someone tries to point out the truth about their oppression, they just reject it right out. Why? Because they've been blinded by the culture they live in, by all the other things that the dominant people are saying. They get blinded by it. So for example, if a gay person becomes a Christian and then suddenly now says homosexuality is a sin, cultural Marxists will say, see, you're, you're still blind. You have internalized your oppression. See, you as a gay person, you should know the truth, right? You should really know the truth about your oppression, who you are, and yet now you say you're a Christian and now this is a sin? You've internalized your oppression. You're still blind. And so they would say you are as blind as the privileged heterosexual who wrote the Bible, set up all these norms. And so this is what they're saying. So look at how that completely cuts the legs out from under the Bible and speaking anything true, right? Like how can you even go to anybody and say, hey, the Bible says this and this is the truth? You can't. Everything that they say is, look, that's ideology, and if you believe that, then now you have internalized oppression. Okay, you've drank the Kool-Aid. And so there's no more room for objective truth. There's no more room for the Bible to convict people of sin. There's no more room to say anything about sin. So again, this view of truth through lived experience only, this has come into the church. It's in the church. And Neil Shenvey shared this example but a few years ago, Tim Keller wrote an article for the New York Times. Tim Keller, by the way, passed away. He was the famous pastor in New York. But he wrote an article for the New York Times arguing that neither political party perfectly captures Christian values. And in that article, he was talking about justice, right? He was talking about how Christianity should be about justice. Well, in response to that, a prominent evangelical author and speaker, and he has a lot of people following him on Twitter, 16,000 Twitter followers, this is what he wrote. But he said, Tim Keller has no authority, bold caps, no authority to teach on justice, none. Keller is, in his words, it might be a she, in her words, a rich white man whose ministry targets rich people. The only ones with divine authority to define the bounds of oppression are the oppressed themselves. Did you guys catch that? That is a Christian author and speaker slamming Tim Keller, saying, you have no right. Basically saying, shut your mouth. How can you even talk about injustice? You're a rich white man. Who's going to listen to you? Leading a church full of rich people. You have no right to talk about that. And why is that? It's because of this belief that you can only know the truth because of your experience. And anyone who hasn't had that experience, you don't have access to truth. So you see the problems with this. Okay, there are huge problems. But if you really believe this, then now you have qualified people who have studied the Bible for years and years. They've lived a long, fruitful life. They have wisdom, genuine wisdom. And yet, these people can no longer speak out on any subject. 
that they haven't lived out personally. They have no right to talk about poverty, injustice, racism, even though they have wisdom on this. They can't speak on it. So you can't speak on injustice. Why? Because you've never faced systemic injustice. You can't speak on racism. Why? Because you've never been a victim of racism. You can't speak on helping the poor. You can't even talk about the challenges they face. Why? Because you've never been poor yourself. And so this is what they say. And what if people have different lived out experiences? Okay, what if people have different experiences that lead them to different truths? Okay, this is another problem. But let's say one person experienced the U.S. as a primarily racist country. Okay, that was their own experience. That can happen. Another person experienced the U.S. as primarily a sexist country. Okay, that can happen. A third person experienced the U.S. as a religiously intolerant country. So let's say these three different people had three different experiences. They drew these conclusions. Which one do you have to accept? All of them. All of them. Right? Because that's the truth. If people have lived it out and experienced it, then that's the truth. And if you haven't, you don't know the truth. So you must accept all of them. Okay, whether they actually are or not, whether they contradict each other or not. So these are massive, massive problems, right? They have huge consequences. So that's the third idea. Okay, you can only truly know truth through lived experience. And then finally, the fourth idea is social justice is the end game. It is the end game. So cultural Marxists, they make it clear that their goal is, quote unquote, the elimination of all forms of social oppression. Okay, that is the end game. They call it liberation. And this liberation often takes the highest priority above all other moral duties. And so this is the most important. I'm not saying every single person in these movements, but for a lot of them, this is the most important. And the teaching makes it clear. This is the most important, liberation. Again, going back to Neil Shenvey, he had a lot of examples in his writings. But he shared this example. And I actually saw this one on the news live. I remember when it happened. But three years ago, a member of Antifa hit a Trump supporter in the head with a bike lock. Do you guys remember that? So there was a big protest happening. There's one Trump supporter. I think he might have had a MAGA hat on. And he was just talking. He wasn't doing anything. He was just talking. Whether we agree with him or not, he's just talking, right? Freedom of speech. And then one protester came up behind him with a bike lock and slammed him on the head. And then he collapsed onto the ground. And amazingly, this was the most shocking thing, is that the man who committed the assault... He was a professor. He taught ethics at a local university. <laughs> so that is amazing. Unbelievable. And so to that man, okay, that, that teacher of ethics, the moral duty that you shouldn't hit people with bike locks, okay, that was a lower priority than resisting oppression or something vague like that, right? Liberating people from oppression. Okay, that was a higher priority. And so granted, that is an extreme example. Not everyone in these movements will act like that, but I'm just saying that is the logical conclusion. That is where it is headed. So this ultimate priority on liberation, this is also in the church, brothers and sisters. You see it in the more progressive branch of Christianity. They talk a lot about the social gospel. They talk a lot about liberation theology. And because they emphasize that so much, that is such a priority in the process, they lose the true gospel. They have lost the true gospel. So these are all the ideas that are just cooking and boiling in our culture today. These are the ideas of cultural Marxism. And so as we go around, as we talk about 
this topic with different people, try to identify these ideas. Okay, whether oppression is coming through ideology, whether everyone is divided into these different groups, whether you need to only have access to truth through lived experience, okay, whether this is the end game, liberation, okay, look for these truths in the people that we talk to and learn how to respond to them. And so this is what we're going to look at for the remainder of the time. But how should we respond to cultural Marxism? Okay, how should we respond? So in the same way, there were four ideas. Here are four ways we can respond to cultural Marxism. Okay, four ways we can respond. So number one, okay, these are going to be a lot like simpler and practical. But listen to understand. Okay, listen to understand. It says in James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Did you hear that part? Why should we be quick to hear and slow to speak? Why do we need to listen before anything else? Because if we rush ahead in anger, it doesn't bring the righteousness that God requires. Amen? And so this is the first step is we need to listen to understand. And I really like this one book, James Lindsay. I mentioned him last week. He's one of those philosophers that wrote a lot on this topic. And he also wrote a book on having impossible conversations. It's called How to Have Impossible Conversations. He had a co-author. But in this book, Lindsay and his co-author said, basically, if you want to change someone's mind, you have to listen. Amen? You have to listen. So I, I really like what they said, but they said, and by the way, they said uh, in a podcast talking about this book that they drew a lot of this stuff from Christian evangelism. That was very interesting because they're atheists, but they know different Christians. They've formed relationships with Christians over time, and they said that they've noticed that a lot of Christians have these uh, tactics, you can call it. But they said, you need to listen first. And before anything else, I like what they said. They said, put away your killer facts. Okay, to approach somebody who's deep in cultural Marxism and to start with your killer facts, and there are a lot of killer facts, right? A lot of contradictions there, a lot of things you could tear down. But they said, put that away. They said, no one has truly reevaluated their beliefs after being punched in the head. <laughs> Isn't that true? If you've ever had an argument with your spouse or a good friend, like just attacking them, has that changed their minds ever? Never. And so they said, put that away. Okay, don't start with your killer facts, but start with listening in order to understand. They also wrote, how do you switch from viewing people as opponents, moral degenerates, or even enemies to valued partners and collaborators? Okay, how do you switch your view on people? And a lot of Christians do have negative views on people out there with these beliefs, and we shouldn't. Okay, we're, not, we're not seeing people in those ways. But if you do, how do you switch your view on people from these negative things to valued partners and collaborators? Well, their answer is shift your goal from winning the argument to understanding, amen? And that begins with listening. So you must listen first. You have to begin with listening. Here's another quote. It is difficult to have an adversarial relationship with someone who is an excellent listener. Isn't that so true? If you have a friend who is an excellent listener, you're trying to start an argument with them or try to fight with them, you just can't. Because they're just, dang it, why are you listening so well, right? You're just always just listening to me. So what argument is there? They hear everything you're saying. So it is difficult 
to have this kind of adversarial relationship with someone who is an excellent listener. So be a listener, brothers and sisters. That's the first step. And then after that, you need to build rapport. You need to build this connection with them. We're still under the first point. But even God himself did this. Isaiah 118, God said, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Do you see that? God is saying, hey, you're sinning against me. You've rebelled. You're on a destructive path. Come. Let's reason together. Let's talk this through. Let's talk about it. And implied there is God is willing to listen. Okay, I'm going to listen to you. You tell me what's going on. Of course, God already knows. But he's saying, let's reason. And then I want you to listen to what I have to say. And so here are some quick ways you can build rapport, connection, but reach out relationally. Again, these authors, they learn from Christian evangelism. Okay, don't attack them right away, but, but begin to just kind of get to know them, even if it's at a superficial level, but reach out relationally. Ask questions in order to genu- generally, uh, genuinely learn where they're coming from. Repeat back what they said to you. So that's important as well. As you're talking to them, periodically tell them what they said. So in other words, dot, 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 and then repeat back what they said to you. And then finally, share what you learned from what they said to you. So I, I love these points, but, but have you ever done that? Have you listened? Have you asked questions in order to genuinely learn? Have you repeated back what people are saying to you? We're talking about somebody that you don't agree with, right? And have you actually shared what you learned from them? Oh, thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that about your view. I didn't realize that was true. And then you share what you learned. And it is amazing as we do that, what can open up. Amen? This is how you really begin to make an impact. And perhaps they can make an impact on you. But the goal is you want the truth to go to them. So this is the first thing. We must listen. Okay, make that connection. Okay, number two. Affirm what we agree on. Affirm what we agree on. And yes, there are some things we agree on. So Philippians 4, 5, Paul said to the Philippians, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I don't think Christians are doing a very good job of that. How many Christians are truly known as reasonable? But Paul commanded them, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And how do you do that? By actually being humble enough to say, you know what, there are some things you're saying we agree on. Okay, that, that's the definition D.A. Carson gave on that word reasonableness. D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar. But he said reasonableness, it actually can also be translated gentleness. But this isn't about being a wimp, quote unquote, with the kind of person whose personality is like a wet dishcloth. But what is in view is a kind of willed, self-effacing kindness. In other words, is a person who's humble. And because they're humble, they'll acknowledge some things that are true. You're being kind, right? You're agreeing on points that are actually true. And so as you talk to cultural Marxists, are there some things that they desire that are actually right? I would say some. Are there some things they believe that are actually true? Yes, there are some things. Although overall, it's, it's very misguided, right? Well, what are some of these things? Well, hegemonic power, that invisible power through ideology and culture, is that real? Well, let me ask you this. For many of you parents, have you walked through the mall lately with your kids, <laughs> right? Have you ever experienced 
cultural influence and power kind of coming onto you. It's like, whoa, I didn't want my kids to see that ad. Or, whoa, that store has a lot of mannequins wearing what? And, right, what is going on? There's a lot of influence and power that the culture can have. Hegemonic power is real. So you can agree, to, agree with that. Yes, laws and institutions can promote sin. Yes, we know that. That was more clear and obvious maybe 100 years ago. There were terrible laws in place. Most of those are gone now, if not nearly all of them. But there are still laws and institutions, maybe subtle policies that can promote sin, yes. And so this is an agreement that we can have. The powerful in society, yes, do set up institutions and corporations to benefit themselves, yes. To oppress those who don't have, yes. We can acknowledge that. Okay, what else? Oppression is real. Oppression is real. The Bible acknowledges both Old and New Testaments repeatedly that yes, oppression is real and God condemns it. And so we can acknowledge, we can even mention how the Bible agrees with that. Anybody who has worked with trafficked children and women, no, this is very real. Oppression is real, yes. Okay, what else? Racism is real. A lot of people in cultural Marxism, they are very hypersensitive about racism and in a way, yes. Okay, that is not, that is not wrong because racism is real. I bet many of us in this room, if I were to go around asking, can attest to that personally. Whether you were being racist or somebody else was racist towards you, I think we can all have personal testimonies of that to a different degree. But yes, racism is real. So here are some things that we can agree upon and build that rapport. So that's the second thing we can do in responding to cultural Marxists. Okay, number three, plant a seed of doubt. By the way, this isn't just cultural Marxists. This is anybody that you want to actually convince them of something, right? Even your spouse about something. But, but you don't just punch them in the head, right? Nobody changes their mind because, oh, here are my killer facts. Boom, boom, right? Oh, yeah? You're just going to have an all-out, you know, MMA fight on the ground. The way you do it is you build rapport. You find agreements, and then you plant seeds of doubt. And I love this, but the Apostle Paul even did this in Galatians. But in Galatians 3, verse 2, all the way to verse 5, he asks a series of questions to the Galatians who had actually left the gospel. They were now going back to Judaism, a form of Judaism, believing that you're saved through faith in Christ and works. And so Paul was attacking that belief, and he did it by asking questions. And in fact, a series of questions was really just one big question. So in verse two, he said, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hmm, right? He's planting a seed of doubt. And then he asked more questions and then he repeats it in verse five. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Galatians, you've experienced miracles in your church. Did that happen because you're so good? because you've perfectly followed God's law or is it because you have faith in the gospel? So do you see that? He's planting seeds of doubt through questions. So we can do the same. Is as you're talking to these cultural Marxists, these friends or coworkers or family members, as the conversation moves along, look for places to plant a seed of doubt. And it doesn't have to be a, be a big one, but just a single seed even. So for example, you can point out a contradiction. Okay, that would be a seed of doubt. Right? Oh, okay, thanks for sharing that. That helped me to understand that. But you know what I noticed? There's a contradiction there. So here's like an easy one. A lot of college students talk about this, but postmodernism's view of truth is self-refuting. 
because postmodernism says that no one can know objective truth. There are no objective truth claims. Well, then what about your claim right now about truth, right? What about the claim you just told me? Is that also not objectively true? And if it's not objectively true, why should I believe it? So that's a contradiction, right? And so that's an easy one you can point out. Here's another one. You could point out how cultural Marxists constantly say all cultures are equal and worthy of equal respect. They say that all the time in their writings. There's no one better than the other because they care about equality so much. And yet, when it comes to Western culture, they demonize it. All they can do is point out the, the bad things. So you can point that out. Well, it kind of seems a little contradictory that you say all cultures are equal and worthy of respect, and yet you don't seem to have that towards Western culture or Christian culture. Okay, why, why is that? So that's one way to plant a seed of doubt. Here's another way. Challenge their assumptions. Challenge their assumptions. So for example, you can say, I've noticed because you believe in X, right, that's an assumption, right? Because you believe in this thing over here, you're getting this undesirable result over here. Because you believe in X, you're getting Y over here. Okay, what, why, why is that? So you're challenging their assumptions. You know, I really loved this example by Bishop Robert Barron, but he gave a very, very amazing talk on this, actually. He's a great philosopher. But he mentioned how diversity, equity, and inclusion, these are all values that the cultural Marxists talk about all the time. Diversity, equity, inclusion. If you go to a company training, you'll probably hear those words. Diversity, equity, inclusion. But Barron said these are secondary values. And when you make secondary values primary values, you're gonna be in chaos very soon, in very short order. You're gonna find chaos. And so people are like, what do you mean? And he said, he actually shared this example, but he said he was teaching this to a bunch of <clears throat> Notre Dame students one time, a bunch of college students at Notre Dame. And he basically told them, you know, you guys consider yourselves radically inclusive, right? Equity, diversity, inclusion, right? You guys consider yourselves radically inclusive? They're like, yes, we are. And then he said, well, how many students have to be excluded so that you could be here in the school? And they all got quiet. <laughs> They're like, probably thousands. We're so inclusive, right? This is a primary value, and yet if you make it primary, then look at this negative result, right? You end up in this weird place where you're a hypocrite. All these other people got excluded, but you're saying you're radically inclusive? And so rather than talk about diversity, equity, inclusion as primary, just call them secondary. There are times when you want these things, but then what are the primary values you should have? Justice and love. Justice meaning rendering to each his or her due. Right? Whatever people deserve, that is what they receive. Justice and the love, willing the good of another. And then Baron asks, when and where do those not apply? They always apply, right? Justice and love, they always apply. And so that's just kind of my long way of saying challenge people's assumptions. Right? Challenge their assumptions. Like, why do you believe these things as primary values? You get weird things, weird, weird results. You can challenge that. So that is the third thing you could do. And then here's the final one. And I am so glad we're finally here. <laughs> I'm very glad. Share Christ. Share how Christ is the answer. 
So everything that they are longing for as human beings created in God's image, all the things that are legitimate, all the desires that we could agree upon, where will they find them ultimately? It is Christ. He is the answer. And we're going to close with this. But John 4.13, Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So you see Jesus doing this where the moment he met this woman at the well, he knew her. He knew the longings in her that she was desiring to have relationships with men and be fulfilled romantically and find a lifelong partner, and yet she couldn't find this man. She was on to her fifth man, fifth husband. And Jesus said, I'm going to fulfill what you're longing for. I will give you water that will quench your thirst forever. And Jesus actually, shortly after that, said, it is me, right? I'm the one. I'm the living water. I'm the one who will quench your thirst. So Jesus pointed this woman to himself. You see Philip doing this in Acts 8.35. Then Philip, after he saw the Ethiopian, the spirit told him, go run up to the Ethiopian. He ran up. Philip then opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture that the Ethiopian was reading, he told him the good news about Jesus. So there Philip the apostle, the evangelist, started with the Ethiopian's question. I'm sorry, he wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon. But Philip started with the Ethiopian's question, and then he ultimately did what? Tell him about Jesus. He completed the Ethiopian's longing by pointing to Jesus. The Ethiopian was wondering, who's this passage talking about? Right? I'm a God-fearing man. I want to know more about who God is talking about. Philip says, Christ Paul also did this, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Did you guys hear that? Paul said, what are Greeks looking for? Wisdom. What are Jews looking for? Power. Where are they going to find the true expression of both of that? Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It couldn't be clearer. Paul took the legitimate desires of these groups of people and he said, where are you going to find your desires met? Jesus. Jesus will fulfill your desires. So Paul said the power that the Jews wanted so much and the wisdom that the Greeks wanted so much could only be found in Jesus ultimately. And please notice, I'm not saying Christ will give them things like a genie. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. But he himself is the wisdom of God and the power of God. In the same way that he himself is the living water for the woman. That was so thirsty, looking for relationships. So Jesus himself is the power, wisdom, freedom, purpose, meaning, equity, justice, love. That these cultural Marxists are looking for. So this is the gospel that we need to present, brothers and sisters, as we talk to our family members, coworkers, friends, who are deep into this cultural Marxism. You need to challenge what they believe, okay, gently in that kind of relational way, plant a seed of doubt, but ultimately you must bring Christ into the picture. Show that Christ fulfills all the desires that you are longing for. And the gospel truly does it in the most mind-blowing, amazing way. You know, even as I was reading for the last few weeks all this stuff on postmodernism, cultural Marxism, equity, fairness, all this stuff, 
When I finally came back to the gospel, I was just amazed at how clearly the gospel addresses all of these things. But the cultural Marxists, they care so much about equality, right? Fairness, justice, everyone has to be equal. Well, what has brought more equality than anything else in this world? Think about the gospel. What does the gospel say? We are all made in what? The image of God. We're all made in the image of God. I don't care what skin color, what gender, what your orientation sexually, you're all made in the image of God. Even if some of that is sinful, the sexual orientation part. All made in the image of God. But the Bible also says what? We are all sinners. We have all fallen into sin. And because of that, we are all condemned by God. We're all the same. And then the gospel says what? We are all what? Redeemed in Jesus Christ. Amen? So do you see that? We are all created in the image of God. We have all fallen into sin. And we are all redeemed by one Savior, Jesus Christ. And what can bring people together more than that? There's nothing else. I don't care about all this like critical theory and all that. I mean, you can do that endlessly. And they even admit that. They're like, this is a never-ending project. This is a never-ending movement because we will never arrive. Well, you can tell your friends and family members you can arrive. There is equality. There is true justice. It is in Christ. Amen, brothers and sisters? And then through that, healing happens. Racism goes away. Injustices begin to melt away. And then the, the true value that we should all have, love and justice, begin to reign. Amen? So this is the beauty of the gospel, and this is what we must share with those who are trapped in this ideology. And so with that, we're going to bring our teaching on false teachings to a close. Amen? And we're going to move forward to the rest of Second Peter next week. But let's just come before the Lord. And let's bow our heads. I realize that was a lot that we went through for the last few weeks, both neo-paganism and cultural Marxism. Maybe in the future we'll make that an individual class where people can actually sit down and discuss these issues. But for now, let's just come before God and let's ask God to give us greater wisdom and understanding. To give us that true heart of a missionary so that we can truly begin to reach out to those who are in desperate need, who desperately need to hear this gospel message.